I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. This is the show that explores how DNA is changing our lives and the world around us. Today, we're going to get the very latest information on Parkinson's disease. In 2020, roughly 1 million Americans will have been diagnosed to be living with this disease. We get about 60,000 new diagnoses every year. And we've gathered this conversation with a full range of people who are knowledgeable of, impacted by, and working toward the eradication of this disease. We have in the room with me right here, Layla Ali, a former world championship professional boxer, a 24-0 record, 21 knockout. She's an author. She is a television host. She is a health and wellness expert with her own product line. And she is, of course, the youngest daughter of Muhammad Ali, who lived for over 30 years with the disease. He felt like it made him even stronger to show people, like, I have this disease, but I'm still going to come out. I'm not going to hide. Nothing's going to stop me. We have Debbie Brooks with us. She is the co-founder and executive vice chairman of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, working to deploy capital in innovative ways to move the needle on this disease. I've come to appreciate that Parkinson's patients, when this disease lands in their lap, they're likely going to have a lot of good years in front of them. But there are so many things they can start to do right away that can set that the vector in the best posture. We have Dr. Andy Singleton, a neurogeneticist, senior investigator at the National Institute for Aging, which is part of the National Institutes for Health, NIH. Just from talking with patients, you see so much benefit from the things that they pursue around exercise and dance and yoga and doing the crossword and maintaining an active lifestyle. And later on in the conversation, I'll be talking to someone currently living with the disease, Jimmy Choi, three-time American ninja warrior, an athlete, a motivational speaker, and a Parkinson's advocate. I was told that I would be in a wheelchair when I'm in my 40s. I'm far from being in a wheelchair. So I'd like to start with Andy and Debbie especially to just kind of lay the foundation down of what is Parkinson's and share more numbers of who's affected, but also how. How many are at risk and why this is such a threat that needs serious proactive management. Can one of you take us into the basics of Parkinson's? We believe there are around a million people affected with Parkinson's disease in North America, and estimates suggest around 6 million people affected worldwide, although that's probably a a really gross underestimate. It's, It's far more people than that, I think. What's particularly concerning is that, of course, our population is graying, right? We're living longer and uh, the proportion of people who are over 50, over 60, over 70 is increasing. So the number of people affected by age-related disorders will also increase. And of course, Parkinson's disease is an age-related disorder. The biggest risk factor is, is age. Can you define what Parkinson's is? Many of us have an image of tremors. We've known some world famous and celebrity figures who've suffered from it. Can you just lay down an elementary introduction to how the disease even works and what its symptoms are? So we don't really know how the disease works. When you think of the disease, you think of what a patient looks like. And I think one of the first things that you notice is that the patient looks stiff, they're slow in movement, they often have tremor. So these movement disorders are the the first thing you notice. But 
when you talk to anyone with Parkinson's disease, you realize there's so much more to it than just the movement disorder. There's lots of other things that affect PD patients, depression, some issues with memory and thinking, other kind of autonomic and dysautonomic features that affect all sorts of activities of daily living and quality of life. The disease is an age-associated disease, so the older you are, the higher your risk, and with a typical onset in the 50s or 60s, something like that. It's a slowly progressing disease, typically, so patients will begin with some kind of feature like a tremor or something that can seem quite benign at first, but it's an insidious disease in that it will just continue to progress. There are some treatments that help to deal with the symptoms, so they help to mask or affect some of the symptoms that you most commonly see in Parkinson's disease, but there's no disease-modifying treatment, so the, the disease will march on. There's no treatment yet to halt or slow the disease. And Debbie, what is the Fox Foundation's perspective on Parkinson's and where the disease is today and where the battle against it stands? Well, I think one of the things that Andy mentioned, which is we don't have treatments that really address the underlying disease course, that remains the greatest unmet need for patients. And so our organization is really focused on how can we, in partnership with patients, work together to accelerate progress. And even though the disease is slow moving, over time, patients are really struggling with more and more unmanaged elements of the disease, and it becomes overwhelming If you know one person with Parkinson's disease, you know one person with Parkinson's disease. It's really highly variable from person to person. And so how do you bring together a package of needs for one patient versus the next and put an organizing principle around these things so that you can advance progress? I want to talk a bit about what that experience is. And Layla, I will turn to you because Debbie mentioned this is a slow-moving disease and it progresses over time. And your father lived with this disease for just over 30 years. What do you remember of the moment from your life where you were aware that something's happening with your father? It's all a bit of a blur in terms of when I first knew that he had the disease. I remember probably being about seven years old when I noticed a change in him with the tremors and a little bit of slurred speech. And you hear kids at school saying, oh, your father has brain damage and things like that. But I didn't really understand whether he did, he didn't, that he had a disease. You know, as a kid that young, you don't really understand even what a disease is. But I do remember getting older, maybe when I was 12, 13, when I really started to understand that he had a progressive disease, Parkinson's, and that he started changing more and more over the years. I just remembered him always never wanting us to feel sorry for him and explaining to us, like he would just say, oh, it's just my hand is just shaking, but I'm fine. You know, everything else is fine. And in terms of how your family operated and his role in the family, over time, as the disease made progress in his body, did that further affect? Like, how did it show up in the family? Well, my parents divorced when I was young, so I didn't actually live with my father, but I would see him probably every three months. So you notice changes even more when you're not there every day. Right. I would see him and say, oh, okay, seems a little worse as the years went by. And for your own children, did they get a chance to interact with him? Did they have any observations? They did. My daughter, Sydney, had a really special connection with my father. Sydney is eight years old. And ever since she was a baby, she used to go to him and he would hold her. And a lot of times children were scared of my father because 
his energy was just so strong. Mm. And then his hands were trembling. The tremors, he has big hands. He's a big man. And she just was glued to him. She wasn't phased at all. Not at all. And she would like touch his face. And he noticed too, like, wow, she's not afraid of me, but she would kiss him and hug him. So they really had this spiritual connection. I remember one day we came to his house and he was having acupuncture and we were like, wait, 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 don't go in there right now. He's got all these needles. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's going to be scary. But she ran in there and didn't care. She hopped right on in the bed with him. And I was like, okay, (laughs) this one's special. Yeah. That was, it was great to see. Can you describe how you fit into the family and and sort of the traits you carried from him? Yeah. So I'm the youngest girl in the family and I'm the only one that decided to become a boxer. Now, my family was not surprised when I announced to them that I was going to go pro. Mm -hmm. My father didn't like it. He tried to talk me out of it because it wasn't until I was about 17 that I saw women's boxing for the first time. I was like, had this plan and I saw women's boxing and I was like, how did I not know women boxed? And that's when I first realized that it was in me. I hadn't even participated in sports up until that point. And I remember thinking like, oh, what's everyone going to think? And a year later, I was training kind of in secrecy after school, after work. And I told my dad and he was just like, try to talk me out of it. He's like, what's going to happen if you get in the ring and you get knocked down or you get knocked out? Or I was like, well, I'm going to do what you did. I'm going to get back up. And then he finally got frustrated and said what was really on his mind. He says, not for women. It's not for you. It's too hard. And I said, you know, I understand that, Dad, but this is what I've decided to do. So he supported me throughout my career, but I knew he was afraid because he always said that Parkinson's, he didn't feel came from boxing. But I think that he still was afraid of just me getting hurt in general. Who knows what was really in the back of his mind. And that persistence, it seems evident in how he continued to live with Parkinson's in terms of continuing to travel, doing his humanitarian work. From your experience and exposure to him, was that a conscious choice to get back up off the floor and kind of keep pushing? Absolutely. Everything he did was conscious and intentional and had purpose. So he was adamant about the fact that boxing was just his platform to do what he was really put on this planet to do, his humanitarian work. And he felt like it made him even stronger to show people, like, I have this disease, but I'm still going to come out. I'm not going to hide. Nothing's going to stop me. This was obviously a part of the plan. He never sat around and felt pity for himself. He didn't want other people to, because trust me, it was hard. It was hard traveling that way, having hundreds of people crowding around you all the time, signing an autograph, how much more energy that took him to do and look everyone in the eye, make them feel special, picking up babies, doing all of that, all while having this disease. And I know it was tiring, but it just showed me the will of a man to get through all of that and to continue traveling and doing his humanitarian work. He literally signed his own fan mail. But he'd get thousands of pieces of of mail and he would love to sit at this big, large table in his office and sign each piece of mail. Just watching that, how much he loved people, he loved to give back. And you're just like, wow. Yeah. I was so proud of him in so many ways. Yeah. I want to bring Andy and Debbie back in. What do we know about the origins of this disease, about its genetic origins, about its environmental, or at least what hints do we have? We know so much more than we did really when genetic investigation started in this disease, which was back in 97. Before 97, we thought there was no genetic component to the disease whatsoever. Or if there was, it was incredibly rare. That's changed completely over the last 20 years. First of all, with the discovery of of mutations that cause disease, you know, if you carry them, you're going to get disease. Those are generally pretty rare. But with the understanding in the last 10 years or so that there are myriad genetic factors, common factors that we all carry that change your risk for disease. So we know Parkinson's is a genetic disease, but we also know it's an environmental disease because 
Genetics isn't deterministic. Genetics doesn't drive all of your risk for a disease. And what else is there apart from chance and the environment? So we really think of it as a typical complex disease where your risk is brought about by a combination of genetics and how you live your life. And what other questions are we asking to try to narrow that set of genes we're looking at or that set of environmental factors that may trigger those genes to flip the switch on to the disease? As it turns out, I think genetics is a lot easier to investigate than the environment. I think our genome's huge, 3 billion base pairs, but it's finite. It's 3 billion. Whereas your environment, you think about all of the things that happen to you during your life and how much of them happen. And that's so much more complex and so much harder to measure, actually, than genetics. So I think that a lot of us are trying to take hints from genetics, from the biological processes that we see affected by genes that confer risk for disease, and ask the question, do those tell us anything about environment? And of course, there are lots of things that have been associated with environment and risk for disease over the years. Narrowing down that complexity, trying to bring some order to it, I think, Debbie, that's what the Michael J. Fox Foundation has been trying to accelerate in terms of how you're using your money and how you're operating in the philanthropic space. Can you talk about first how you came to this world and then and give us an introduction to what the foundation's approach is and how it's different? Sure. Of course, we're started by a patient, also Michael Fox, who himself has now been living with the disease for 29 years. And when he was public and was called into action and just was motivated, by the way, one of the first people he spoke with was Muhammad. And so they were kindred spirits around this. And But Michael's sense was, as a patient, what could he do and what could more people do to galvanize an effort to elevate Parkinson's as a field of study and to just bring greater awareness? And so... We didn't really have much more of a roadmap than that. What's the greatest unmet need and what can we do to move the dial in that regard? And so what we started out with was, well, let's try to raise some money and then we got to figure out the smartest way to spend it. And my background was more from business and finance, and that was a good fit for me. I was practiced at thinking about how to use capital, how much risk to take. And so we really set out at the beginning saying, no matter how much money, how are we going to decide the smartest way to spend it? The philanthropy in disease space is minuscule in some ways in comparison to what the government spends and what pharmaceutical companies spend. If you're going to have a smaller relative amount, you have to really think about what's the most exponentially impactful way to spend it. As we've raised more and more money, we've put it to work aggressively, mostly trying to do the things that other money won't do. And that's often trying to see all these things are being tried, but what makes us keep coming up short? And some of the things are to take ideas that are kind of in early stages and help move them over the kind of complications of getting out of this is interesting science to what kind of science and what's the last bits of data we need to know that this actually can be turned into a treatment. That's an uncommon place for capital to be available when it comes to taking aha moments in a lab all the way to the drugstore shelf. And so we did pick that sweet spot. How do you pick up things when they're ripe and make sure there's enough additional data around them so a pharmaceutical company will pick it up? And then the second thing is we'd like to really understand how people get this disease and what the disease really is. And even though it's been described for over 200 years, 
we really just describe the symptoms. We don't really know enough about what's going on underneath. One of our beliefs has been, let's do what we can to actually study it in the patients themselves. It's not that nobody thinks to do that. It's just it's very expensive and it's hard. We've built as a platform to engage with hundreds of thousands of patients to really bring them into the research process. As participants in research by providing information, including in some cases their genetic samples, but also to be part of the living body of knowledge around what does this disease look like. And that's particularly important when you have a highly variable disease like Parkinson's. You need a lot of people, you need scale to really gather the insights you're hoping for. You know, there's a principle that's underneath that approach that I've heard in other circles and more activist circles that says, People closest to the problem should be closest to the solution. So congratulations on making the simple scalable in that sense. You work in advocacy for health and wellness in general. Where does that come from for you? And what exactly are you doing? Well, when I decided to become a boxer, I went on this journey and I was like, okay, it's about what I put in my body, how I think, the rest that I get, everything, my mental state. That's what inspired me because I saw the change. I transformed my body and my mind. I became an elite athlete just by making my mind up to do so and being consistent. Then when I had children, I started just doing more research on organic food and non-GMOs and just really immersed myself in that world. Then, of course, knowing that we have all these epidemics that are heart disease and diabetes and all these things that come from lifestyle choices a lot of the time. So people really need information and they're just overwhelmed by you're supposed to eat this or don't eat that or this is healthiest oil that's not and you know? every season there's a new like right. trending diet or workout yeah, exactly. regime or yeah you and you got to filter through it but i try to encourage people to keep it simple nobody ever argues that you shouldn't eat more vegetables you shouldn't eat clean you know i don't care if you're vegan or if you're doing keto or paleo whatever it is because our bodies are always constantly working on our behalf to try to keep up with everything that we're doing. I just encourage people to go on a journey with me. And I know that a lot of people just aren't educated about what they should and shouldn't be eating. My fear in life is to feel like I didn't do the best that I could to take care of myself because we only have one life to live, one body. Of course, I'm not in control of the outcome of everything, but I, I am in control of what I put in my body yeah. and what I choose to have in my environment. The role of well-being, healthy exercise has come up in some of the research. I'm talking with Jimmy Choi later about that. Dr. Andy or Debbie or both, what do we know about just the role of exercise and overall healthy lifestyle choices that technically help slow the disease or at least help people live with it with a bit more comfort and confidence? I think you hit on it there at the end, which is I think that it helps people live with it in a more functional way, helps them be more comfortable with the disease. I think that exercising your body, exercising your mind, they have to be good things. They have to help you deal with the problems that you're facing with a complex disease like this. I think the amount of research that's in this area is small. It's not as large as we'd like it to be, but just from talking with patients, you see so much benefit from the things that they pursue around exercise and dance and yoga and doing the crossword and maintaining an active lifestyle. There is a component to Parkinson's disease that affects the way that a patient thinks and processes information. And I think if you practice the skill of thinking and processing information, you're protecting yourself to a certain degree. 
I've come to appreciate that Parkinson's patients, when this disease lands in their lap, they're likely going to have a lot of good years in front of them. But there are so many things they can start to do right away that can set that the vector in the best posture. And so things like healthy lifestyle choices, and they're not super specific, as Layla's speaking, it's simple things. A good heart healthy diet is a good brain healthy diet. Maintaining a social network is also helpful for mental acuity. There, these things really come together. And I've been appreciating more and more that any disease of aging, it's almost the time of life where you need to be the healthiest. Mm-hmm. We think of that as, oh, in our 30s or in our 40s, we really want to be healthy. But actually, I've come to appreciate it when you turn 60, (laughs) that's when you really need to get serious about a really holistic sense of what healthiness is. And it's sleep, exercise, functional diets, social worlds, even frame of mind, optimism. These things, they can make a big difference. Layla, I'm thinking about your father's experience from what I could see from a very distant outside. And he seemed to have some of those elements, the optimism big family and a lot of people around the world who loved him and he's staying engaged in the world. Could you, from your closer perspective, see the effects of that on how he approached this disease? Definitely. My father, it really helped all the love that he had around him. Obviously, just everywhere he went, he got a standing ovation. People would come to tears and he loved it. Trust me. We'd be driving down the street and he's like, watch this, watch this. He'd roll down the window and just wait for the person next to them to notice, oh my God, it's Muhammad Ali. But then just all the love of all of his children and talking to him, interacting with him. But I mean, you know, we used to do puzzles with him. He used to draw. He liked to look through magazines, you know, and just really keep his brain going. And we're human beings. We're meant to be touched and loved and have those relationships and things like that. So it definitely is a holistic point of view. What is the role of genetics? And that is probably back to Andy as the neurogeneticist around the table here, but people's understanding of their own genetics, where the science is in getting a little closer to understanding how this disease operates. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, the science is incredible. The pace of discovery is really amazing. I mentioned that we had no genes or no mutations that caused disease back in 96. The first was discovered in 97. Then there was slow wins over the next few years. The most recent analysis of Parkinson's patients included somewhere in the region of about 60,000 patients and one and a half million people without disease. So the genetics of those folks And that's led us to 90 risk factors for disease, genetic risk factors for disease. So we've gone from zero to somewhere in the region of 100 over the space of 20 years. And that pace of discovery is just getting faster and faster and faster. There are a couple of reasons, of course. Why do we look for genes that cause or contribute towards disease? First is prediction. Can you look at someone's genetics and make a prediction for their risk for disease? The second and kind of more traditional approach has been if you understand genetics, you know what flavor of a gene or what type of a gene is involved in the disease process. So you can begin to put together networks of those genes and pathways and biological processes that actually are the disease itself. The processes are the disease itself. So if you understand those processes, you're not kind of fumbling around in the dark anymore for a treatment. You're aiming a treatment at those processes. You're trying to stop the underlying disease at the molecular level. It's like turning the lights on in a dark room and seeing what's really there. Yeah, actually, that's a great analogy. I always think of it as, imagine you've got this incredibly massive building 
with thousands and thousands of windows and you have to understand what goes on in that building. And each gene is kind of a window into that building. It gives you an idea of what the processes are that's going on in there. And hopefully if we understand those processes, we can stop the disease. Do you all think that understanding what goes on behind those windows is going to be increasingly the responsibility, not of advanced research scientists and disease warriors and fighters, but everyday people who want to live a healthy life? There are more and more of us now who have our own genetic information and can put that to use in understanding disease and understanding not just Parkinson's disease, but every disease. Debbie, can you describe what people listening can do to help what the foundation is doing? Yeah, particularly for Parkinson's patients and their family members, if they're not already involved in this and thinking about it, I hope they'll consider it. One of the ways it's kind of relevant to our discussion today is a platform called Fox Insight. And Fox Insight is a place where any Parkinson's patient and actually non-Parkinson's patients can go online and you tell us if you're a Parkinson's patient, you tell us if you're not, and you get a series of surveys once a quarter. So four times a year, you take about a half hour, 45 minutes to answer a series of questions. We already have about 40,000 people who are in this platform, but we need 100,000. Now, I really try to encourage people to think about doing it, and I do it myself. This data is available to researchers in real time, and it's helping us parse all sorts of elements, understanding what patients experience, how it's changing over time, which mix of symptoms they happen to have. We actually have a partnership with 23andMe where we pay for Parkinson's patients who are enrolled in this study to actually spit into a test tube and add their genetic information to the information that they share through the surveys, which is really their lived experience of the disease. Everything from what symptoms bug them to what medications they're on, if they have a family history. And then we lay that DNA next to it. This is an incredibly powerful combination and it enables us, particularly if we have more and more people doing it, to dig in and get more insights than we have today. I'm sitting here now with Jimmy Choi, American ninja warrior, athlete, motivational speaker, Parkinson's advocate and just amazing positive guy. I can already tell from my interaction with you. Thank you. That you're infectious in a good way. I want to hear in your words, your origin story of Parkinson's in your life. Well, I was diagnosed at a very young age. I was only 27 years old and this was back in 2003. My wife and I had just gotten married and we were starting our lives together. You know, we had a mortgage, right? <laughs> you were grown up. We were finally adults. Yeah. Um, Back then, I knew nothing about Parkinson's. I was active. I yeah. played a lot of golf. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be stiff. Especially, I refused to ride in a cart. I always walked. And I would carry 40 pounds of clubs in my back. Right. So being a little stiff after walking 18 holes is normal. Right. I worked in IT industry. This is back in the early 90s in the dot-com boom. So being stressed at work is very common. Minor twitches here and there can explain away these things that I'm feeling. I was losing my balance and, you know, I just always thought maybe I was just not paying attention, being a klutz. So everyday life can be used to explain away the things that I was feeling. How did you decide that this could no longer be explained away? Actually, I didn't. Someone else did. I bought life insurance. And of course, what comes with a life insurance is a insurance physical. Right. The insurance physical, the, the nurse that came and did the physical actually noticed some things about me. 
it all started with the dilation of my pupils being really slow. And then she explained to me that, hey, you know, I do insurance physicals on the side, and I actually just work in a neurologist's office. She never said the word Parkinson's. She never said anything else except that I should have a discussion with my doctor about the things that we're about to talk about, which yeah. is all related around the way that I was moving and the things that she was noticing. I wasn't swinging my arms when I walked across the room and back. My pupils are dilating really slow and I would have stiffness and minor twitches here and there. One referral after another, a easy four to six months later in that whole diagnosis process, I was finally told that I have Parkinson's. What did they discover in your body that confirmed that it's Parkinson's? Because I know there's no blood test for it. There's absolutely no blood test for Parkinson's. There is no single thing that you can do to tell you that you have or don't have Parkinson's. The most reliable thing back then was what they called a DAT scan. And it's a brain scan that essentially looks for changes in the area of the brain where dopamine is being produced. And even that is unreliable. They say that would be an indicator And then after we look at the scans, then they said, all right, it looks like you might have something. So here's some drugs to take. And these are Parkinson's medications, which is uh, levodopa, carbidopa. If my body reacts positively to these drugs, then that's how I was diagnosed. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So you find out four to six months later that you have this disease and you don't do anything about it. No, absolutely. I couldn't get my head around it. I always thought that Parkinson's was for older people. I never knew that someone who was in their 20s could possibly have it. I was convinced myself that my doctors are wrong. After three opinions, yes, all three neurologists were wrong. I okay. convinced myself. I convinced myself that I would just push through it and it would go away just like everything else. You thought you could shake it off. I thought I could just shake you it know, off. You know, walk off this Walk part. it off, exactly. <laughs> Rub some dirt on it and we're good to go. Yeah. For the next eight years, I didn't go back regularly. I only went back when I needed refills. And I took the same dose of medication, no changes. Didn't even open a pamphlet that they gave me when I was diagnosed. I went into full denial mode. How is your wife responding in this period where you both know you have this, but you're doing the bare minimum to manage it? She didn't even know at first. I didn't tell her for a couple more months after I was diagnosed. Only when I decided that I would have to take medication regularly did I tell her. How did that go? I think it was shock and it was more of disbelief on her part. She's like, what? You're kidding. That can't be right. And then I think she took the same approach that I took because she's getting her cues from me. And if I'm not displaying any signs that I need help, then she didn't think she needed to help at the time. Right. Eight years later, my disease has progressed to the point where I was walking with a cane because I kept falling over. I became very inactive. I weighed actually 240 pounds, 250 pounds at one point, like a 50% increase in my weight. It has gotten so hard to move to this point that I just stopped moving. I would put on weight. Without the cane, I could fall. So that's how I live my daily life. One day, Coming down the stairs at home, I was carrying my then infant son. He was 10 months old. Wow. I went, started, proceeded down the stairs, and I, of course, I fell, and I tumbled down the stairs with my son. So you're desperately trying to save his life. Yes. Protect him, even though the act of carrying him down the steps was putting him in danger. Absolutely. I had quite a few thoughts immediately after the fall. Yeah. Number one was, is he okay? 
Number two, I looked over and my wife and my daughter both witnessed this. And the looks on their faces was probably the most disheartening thing that I can see at that time. My son was okay, thankfully. Yeah. But at the same time, I now realized that I've become a safety issue for my kids. In my mind, I've become a burden to my family because now not only does my wife have to worry about the kids, she has to worry about me. Yeah. So what'd you do? I thought about throwing in the towel, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. It was a dark time in our lives. Frustration, anger, depression, all that stuff. Simply because I couldn't move. I couldn't play with my kids. I couldn't live a quote-unquote normal, active lifestyle. But then after I thought about it for a little bit, I started doing research. And for the first time, I started to look and open that pamphlet that, yeah. I, that I was given that <laughs> yeah. I never opened. Well, I finally opened it. Yeah. And then my wife and I started talking about the things that we need to learn about Parkinson's. We studied it together and we learned. Yeah. I noticed that there's no cure out there, obviously. But I also noticed that there's a lot of clinical trials available. They were all starving for participants. Mm. Nobody is signing up for these things. So that's what I told my wife. I told her, hey, you know, we both know I'm not smart enough to find a cure. Right. She, she nodded her head immediately. <laughs> um, we obviously can't fund the cure because it right. takes a lot of money. So that's what I was going to do. I, said, I was going to give up my body for science. Mm. I was going to sign up for as many of these clinical trials as I possibly can and take part in them. Some were as simple as answering questions. Some involved experimental therapies. So I did them all. Whoever would accept me, I did it. So you go from hyper passive mm -hmm. to hyper active. Yes. Yeah. And hyper active in my education one thing that I noticed doing these clinical trials is that everywhere I look, exercise is mentioned all the time. And it's just, it was mind blowing to me because I have a movement disorder. Yeah. Right. And they want me to move. <laughs> right. That was crazy. Yeah. Right. But then it turns out that we now know today that high intensity exercise is the only treatment proven to slow progression of Parkinson's. Tell me what that feels like in your body. I always say that it's that moment of, how do you describe it? That, that, oh moment, mm -hmm. right? The uh, aha moment. The, aha, the religious the aha moment, moment even, yeah. I had to build my way up, right? right. I started walking right. and then I started jogging and I started running, but I was doing that long enough to develop what they call the runner's high. And that's essentially release of endorphins in your brains that makes you feel happier than you really are. Right. Because let's be honest, running sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right? you for keeping it real. Yes, I'm, you know, I'm not saying running's for everybody, but, you know, I was doing it because it was making me feel better. Yeah. And it had to do with the runner's high. The more I exercised, the better I felt. Yeah. It just made me want to do more. It really did become my drug. Yeah. In more ways than one. It was a therapy drug and it's also almost like narcotics because I wanted to do more and I couldn't get enough of it. So I just kept pushing. I've read your stats. I feel like I'm looking at a sports program and an old player's <laughs> card. He's got one ultra marathon, 15 marathons, 100 half marathons, American Ninja Warrior, two seasons. Three seasons. Three, uh, see, we've got to update the stats. <laughs> well, I always joke that on a playground, nobody will ever pick me. But I think it's the mindset that I have today that allows me to do a lot of these things. I mean, when I started running, I'd never run anything more than a mile. But my first 5K came in 2012. And ever since 2012, I ran all those races you mentioned and then some because there's also triathlons in there. There's also century bike rides in there. In fact, I was the first person on record with Parkinson's to complete a 100-mile bike ride in under five hours. And that's holding 20 miles per hour for 
five hours. Yeah. And I was able to do these things because I kept pushing myself. I kept putting one foot in front of the other. And my model was, what can I do today that's better than yesterday? Because I'm going to have good days and I'm going to have bad days. Yeah. And on those bad days, I'll be honest with you, I don't even want to get out of bed. I just want to lay down and I just want to sleep or I just want to rest. But even on those days, I have to make myself get up. I know on those days, I'm not going to get more than yesterday, but at least I'm up and moving. And then when I come back the next day, if I feel better, then I go after it. Can you talk a bit about what it's taken to emotionally retrain yourself and mentally retrain yourself? One of the things that I, I learned is that this is not a hobby. So the mental preparedness that I have to tell myself to get after it every day, to do my regimen, whatever it is, exercise, stretching, keeping track of my medication yeah. so I can keep a log for my doctor so we can both work better together to develop the right dosage and the right treatment plan for me because only person that has this data is me. And my doctors are smart enough to help me, but I have to provide that data. So you have to be disciplined to exercise, to take your meds, yeah. to keep track of what everything is and then provide that data so that you can help yourself. So it is a lifestyle change. Does that level of commitment take any other tolls with your partnership, with your wife? I mean, this is a new level of dedication in your life to your own well-being, but it takes a lot of energy. It does take a lot of energy. And I'll tell you what, that first eight years when I was isolated, I was angry, constantly yelling at my family, mm. arguing with my wife, that's not healthy. But after I started working out and I started finding my active side, my family became my cheerleaders. Every event, every race, yeah. my wife is at the finish line. My kids, they were younger. You can't expect them to sit there for four hours for wait for me to finish a marathon. But they're always there for me. When I told my wife I needed to go and train on a Saturday morning, she was more than happy to do it. And she supported me because she can see the difference in the way that I was moving. And she can see the difference in the way that I was emotionally much happier. So for her, I like to say that it made the things that I'm doing also made it easier for her as well. One of those people asked me, where do you find time to do all this exercise? Mm -hmm. That right? was one of my questions. Yeah, yeah. Don't you have to work? You have kids to take care of. Well, one of the symptoms of people with Parkinson's is insomnia. So when I can't sleep, I often just get up and go run midnight for 10 miles or I'll go out and go to the gym. What has it meant to you to be so public with your disease, with how you're managing it, and to more formally, in terms of Team Fox and the Michael J. Fox Foundation, become this ambassador on behalf of other patients and families? I'll be very honest. In the beginning, it was all about self-preservation. It was about me, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. I was running and exercising and I was feeling a lot better for myself. And I was doing these things to make myself feel better. But it wasn't until I decided to run the Chicago Marathon in 2012. I was late to the party in terms of registering. Yeah. I wanted to register a month before the, the actual event itself, but it was sold out. And the only way in was through charity. And of course, if I'm going to run for charity, I'm going to find a charity that supports Parkinson's research or Parkinson's programs. I've known about Michael J. Fox Foundation, but I didn't know about Team Fox. And that was really where I found Team Fox for the first time. Can you define Team Fox for me? Team Fox is the grassroots fundraising arm of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Okay. They empower volunteers to create their own events mm -hmm. and raise money. And the beauty of it is since I got involved, 100% of every dollar raised for Team Fox goes directly to research. So that's why it's so important. So I decided that I was gonna accept this bib. And it was $2,000 that 
as a fundraising commitment. Yeah. And I had never fundraised that much before. I need to start telling people why I'm doing this. You go to your friends when you need to fundraise, right? You go to your family. So then they're like, well, yeah, why? let's call it fundraising, not borrowing money. Fundraising, yes, yes, definitely <laughs> for a cause. So in that one month's time, I've raised over $5,000 for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And I've reached out to other people with Parkinson's trying to do the same thing, whether or not they're fundraising for other efforts because now I'm part of Team Fox. And that's how I got involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation and Team Fox. And and I met a lot of people through that process that they've become my family now. And now I want to protect my family. I want to keep doing the things that I'm doing because the more money I raise, the better it is for the cause. It's inching us towards that goal which is to find that cure. There's many people out there with Parkinson's that aren't able to do the things that I'm able to do. So sometimes I look at it where I have to pick up some slack for some others. I have to run and move for those who can't so that hopefully one day they can. And what started out as a selfish endeavor has now become there's a purpose in all this. And then the more that I did along the way, eventually somebody stuck a camera in front of me. Oh boy. (laughs) And when I competed on my first season in American Ninja Warrior, by the way, my daughter dared me to try out. That's how that happened. And I couldn't say no to her anymore. For years I've told her, oh, you know, I don't have the strength and I have Parkinson's, come on. Right, that's the best excuse in the world to not go on American Ninja Warrior. (laughs) So I did it for her. And then because of my work and connection with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, it was easy to be public to share that my story with the nation and with the world, really. How much money do you think you've raised through Team Fox activities over these years? So we mentioned all those athletic accolades. Those are all great. But what I'm truly most proud of is the fact that my wife and I have helped raise for more than $400,000 for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Every penny of that yeah. went directly to research. I can't be more grateful than that. What's next for you? So I'm always looking for the next physical challenge, whatever it might be. But yet at the same time nowadays, I have to be mindful about my future with my family. I've always wanted to do a 24-hour bike ride, which means I would ride from one city to another, roughly 320, 330 miles in 24 hours. I've always wanted to do that, and I think I'm going to put that one back on my radar. There's a lot of endurance things that I want to go back and do because high-intensity exercise, I need to keep doing it but I need to do it with as little impact to my body as possible. Cycling is one of those ways to doing it. So who knows? We're going to bring that back. Have you felt that you are pushing back the disease or that you're managing its encroachment on you better because of the regimen of the past several years? The stronger I got, the symptoms never went away. Right. But I'm preparing my body to better handle it. That's how I would best describe it. But am I confident enough to say that I believe that I've, Slowed progression? Absolutely. Because remember, I was walking with a cane. That's right. Right? Now I can run for hours. I can swing on things and fly from bar to bar, whatever it is that you want me to do, I'll try it. Yeah. I was told that I would be in a wheelchair when I'm in my 40s. I'm far from being in a wheelchair. Taking things to the next level it will always be what I'm going to try to do. Yeah. The idea is that I would keep pushing. Right. And I I would encourage others to do the same thing. So what has Parkinson's taught you? It taught me that Parkinson's sucks. All right. Let me be clear, because I'm very positive in the way that I talk about how I live with it. A lot of times people can have the wrong sense that, is he happy that he has Parkinson's? No, it sucks. (laughs) 
I wouldn't wish it on anybody else. Absolutely not. But at the same time, Parkinson's has brought me some things in return that I would otherwise never have if I was never diagnosed with Parkinson's. Friends, for one. People that I've met. Other people fighting the disease that have positive mindset. They provide me with inspiration. They provide me with friendship and guidance to how to live better with the disease. The physical activity. I'm in the best shape of my life. If I was never diagnosed with Parkinson's, who knows what shape I would be in right now? Who knows what I would be doing? People ask me all the time, Jimmy, can you imagine how much stronger you would be, how much faster you would be without Parkinson's? I said, I would never be doing these things if I wasn't diagnosed with Parkinson's. So thinking back on it, it still sucks. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there are ways that people living with Parkinson's can still live well, but it's all about perspective and it's all about how you look at the things that you're doing every day while living with the disease. Yeah. Man, thank you for sharing your story with me, with all of us, this hyper-passive to hyper-active in so many ways, the shift in perspective, these new choices that you've made within the context of a disease that often doesn't leave people feeling like they have very many choices at all. How can people follow your work, find you, get engaged on the internet platforms of the day? Well, I'm on Instagram, JC Fox Ninja. Okay. Same thing on Facebook, at JC Fox Ninja. I could be found on my own website, thefoxninja.com. Yeah. That's T-H-E-F-O-X ninja.com. And I hope your listeners and come out and follow me. Wow. Jimmy's firsthand experience with Parkinson's is certainly inspiring and eye-opening. It also brings to mind the importance of hearing from patients directly. On that note, I'm curious as to what you all have found to be some of the misperceptions out there. What are people getting wrong? What are some of the points of ignorance around this disease that we can help clear up? I think Debbie touched on this earlier, actually, which is that it's one disease, really. I think that we're really beginning to understand that one person's Parkinson's disease isn't another person's Parkinson's disease. And there's this whole array of signs and symptoms and progression, and they vary incredibly from person to person. A lot of the work that is done now is aimed at trying to understand what drives those differences. Why is one person's Parkinson's different to the others? One of the things I think about, which follows on Andy's point, is that there's not a single solution. It's human nature. You're diagnosed with a disease and your first notion is, what can you give me? <laughs> How are we <laughs> going to treat this? And you realize quickly in Parkinson's, there's kind of good news, bad news. One, we actually have some pretty good drugs that help manage the symptoms. And so for the patient, once they start taking those medications, they actually feel better and they feel there's some control. What they're not really prepared for is the fact that over time, the disease overwhelms the value of the medications we have today. What I see as a misperception is that just because we don't have the right answer for you right now doesn't mean it's never going to be there. And these things don't fall from trees. And so one of the things we think about is that how can patients be the solution they're looking for? And it circles back around to some of our central tenets of getting patients involved in research. Sometimes those are trials where we're testing new treatments out, drug trials, real interventions. And sometimes it's just participating in research in a way where you help advance the learning and the understanding and the variability and help answer questions like the one Andy put forth, which is, is this one disease? This notion that it's kind of a monolithic thing, I think, is 
probably a pretty major misconception. I'd also say that we're making lots of progress. And because progress doesn't happen in a day, it doesn't show up in a news cycle in the way other things that we can break through on do. And because these are really long cycles, by the way, they're getting faster. The velocity of progress right now is so inspiring and very exciting. And it shows all over the work we see in the field. But there is a lot of excitement and things are going to change. We tend to overestimate how fast they can change in the short run, but we're underestimating how much is really changing in the matter of three to five years. And in a disease like Parkinson's, where you can live decades with it, it means a lot of progress in your potential lifetime. I think there's a lot to be excited about. Andy, do you have a website for us or any kind of call to action or engage for our listeners to support any of the work you're doing? Actually, I think a great resource is to funnel through the Michael J. Fox Foundation. One of the things that has changed over the last 10, 15 years is that I think the Parkinson's research community is now a real community. We're not working individually in labs by ourselves. We work as a community. And I think a large part of the reason for that is the Fox Foundation. Go through them, they'll funnel it to the right folks. Layla, I'm coming back to you. What is your call to action to people in terms of engaging in their own health? And where would you send them? Where would you ask them to get involved? Well, first, I want individuals to recognize that they can take their health into their own hands. You can be in control of your health. Don't think that, oh, I just get older and I'm going to get sick. I know people who are 60, 70 and in better shape than I'm in physically. They're still running marathons and they look great. Their skin is glowing and they're mentally sharp. And they're living life with vitality. Mm. We're living in a time where people are tired. They can't sleep. Life feels so rough. They don't have vitality. They're just trying to make it. And I just want people to remember what life is really all about. For me, it's really about replenishing your health, replenishing your mindset, and then replenishing your purpose in that order. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Finding your passion. Because to me, that's what's going to keep you going is having that passion. So through the Leilali Lifestyle brand, I have a website, leilali.com. I have content there, tips and tools, where I'm really using my story, my way of thinking, just to inspire others. And I'm really trying to reach that audience that just needs inspiration to get going. Just get going. Get on the journey. Take that first step. Yeah. And that's really all that you have to do. And then there's just so much information out there. And you're going to slip sometimes. Even I do. I mean, trust me, I love a glazed donut. You know what I'm saying? I love some peach cobbler a la mode. You know, that's why I did my cookbook, Food for Life, because I'm like, I want comfort food, but I want it prepared in a healthy, nutritious way. Now I don't have a lot of time. I have two young children. I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, a husband. He's like my third child. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I can make excuses all day long. I sometimes can go weeks and I'm just too tired to work out. But then when I get my mind set and I go, you know what? Even if it's 20 minutes or 15 minutes just to get something in because it makes me feel good. It gets those good endorphins going and it just makes a difference in my day. I want to feel proud of myself. I don't want to feel like, oh, I didn't do it again. Don't have this 20 items on your to-do list. Start with one to three things that you can actually get done. It's really just simple steps like that. (laughs) I think this goal of living with vitality captures a lot of what we've heard in this episode. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Choi talks about it, slightly different words, same spirit. And the way the Michael J. Fox Foundation is approaching this, the way Andy's work, living with this disease with more vitality and preparing to live with it or any other symptom of aging, which hopefully we all get a chance to experience. That's part of the journey of life. So I just thank you for it. And I thank all of y'all for being a part of this and sharing your story and sharing your work and helping our listeners engage in a life of vitality. I'm going to use that. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. 
And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want more surprising stories about how we're all related, search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or on social media wherever Baratundes are found.